Welcome to the Internet of Things Made Simple. I'm Larry Bohumer. This is episode six, and I thank you for joining us. In this episode, we're going to talk about some future projections about where the world of IoT is going and how it's going to affect different areas of your life. But to open, we're going to talk about email, something that many of us spend a lot of time doing. This segment is based on a recent New York Times article. And in the article, it mentioned that many professional people have too much email and that they simply are having issues managing their email at work, let alone their personal email. In fact, as much as one third of the day of some professionals is spent doing email in some form, whether that's reading, replying, or filing, archiving, all those kind of things. To fix the problem, companies like Google and other ones are doing some automation. And that's not new. A lot of us have used automation to send responses like, be there soon, or I can't make it, running late, those kind of things. With AI, they're taking that one step further. These companies went through tens of thousands or even millions of emails, and they learned how humans responded. At first, it wasn't quite successful. There were some funny stories about how the system was saying, I love you, in response to the boss which would have been even funnier if the boss had actually responded back with I love you. But what it actually does instead now is that it learns from the user's preferences and from their previous responses. So if you reply to one of your coworkers with a casual response, it knows to make the responses back to that coworker a little more casual. Whereas if you're responding to HR or your boss, it will use a much more formal tone. The other thing it can do is to pull responses for certain people from documents. So as an example, if your boss were to say, what were the projections for this certain region, it would know it was your boss and it could open up the document, retrieve the information and format the response automatically. That can be a bit scary and obviously it opens up some room for error. But I think over time, it's something that will definitely help the average worker. The main area that I see it helping is going to be in the area of customer service. And we're going to cover that a little more in the main segment. But what I can definitely see happening is a lot of automated responses now are going to be much better and much more informative. And this will reduce the burden on many customer service departments. When we come back from a short break, we're going to talk about some future projections for IoT, including how it's going to affect jobs, how automation is going to change the workplace, and then how it's going to affect your day-to-day -day life. Back in a few seconds. Okay, welcome back. We're going to cover the future of IoT in two different parts. The first one is going to talk about automation and job loss, which is not the most cheery subject I know. The second part is going to talk about how it's going to change your life in the future. And that's going to be things like what you read, how you interact with companies, how products are made, along those lines. So for part one, we're going to talk about automation and job loss. The first kind of job loss is going to happen from what I refer to as machine-based automation. And I jokingly call this segment the rise of the machines. And if you're a Terminator fan, you might remember that. We're already starting to see that. And if you ask the average person what jobs will automation take, they immediately think of the physical jobs because they can actually visualize a robot or some kind of robotic part doing that job. And that's things like restaurants where you'll see machines cooking. I mentioned in a previous podcast about how machines can now make the perfect hamburger. 
You're going to see it doing a lot of cleaning, whether that's in the back of the kitchen itself or on the floor where the customers sit. And you're definitely going to see a lot of preparation work, things like shredding cheese and cutting up vegetables. These are already starting to move towards automation. The second area of machine-based automation is in manufacturing, and this is definitely not new. You've seen robotic arms and other products at many factories for years. That's only going to increase, and I think the reason why it's only going to increase is because the cost is coming down as well as the level of productivity is going up for these machines. The third area is the area of automation which seems to gather the most attention, even though it's not even quite here, and that's the idea of self-driving. People have talked about self-driving cars for years, and the obvious jobs that will replace will be taxis and buses, because those are in very large numbers. But people also miss out the fact that it's going to affect airplanes. I assume in my lifetime, and as I mentioned, I'm in my mid-40s, we will see fully automated flights. So will the need for pilots be nearly as big as we think? You're also going to see it on trains. And in fact, certain monorails, like in Las Vegas, and many trains that go around airports, are now automated. And I think that's only going to continue. But do remember, there are areas that aren't as widely publicized. You've also got things like forklift drivers and other similar devices. You're going to start to see those devices become self-driving as well. And it's going to start with companies like Amazon. It kind of always does. The last area for machine-based automation is something that many of us use all the time. And it was something that I covered in episode 5. And that's cashiers being replaced. So many of us today will use self-checkouts. And that's something that... You can have your own opinion on it, but no doubt it is replacing cashiers. But as I covered also in episode 5, services like Amazon Go are going to actually go one step further in that you won't even have to interact even with a kiosk to check out. So if you haven't listened to that, it's from the open from episode 5. Many people think my job is just too complex to be replaced. You know, I'm a software guy or I'm an analyst. A robot's not going to do my job. Well, you know what? The majority of jobs being replaced are probably going to be white-collar jobs. And that's by using a technology that I call software-based automation. Not new. Look at the job of a bank teller, travel agent, loan officer. Many of these are being replaced by software. The reason being that software is actually quite good at doing these kind of tasks, especially in the case of a loan officer. It's been shown that software with the right input will definitely be able to predict a person's inability to pay in the future much better than any loan officer. And it's going to get worse. It was always that jobs that were replaced by software automation were much broader scope. Jobs that were very similar regardless of which company the work was being done in. That's not the case anymore. You're going to start to see more specialized jobs become much more vulnerable, especially on the analyst side. So if you're a financial analyst, a legal researcher, a medical researcher, even a risk analysis professional. Expect those jobs to be cut, unfortunately. And they're not the only one. The early estimates show that 50 to 80% of all jobs will be eliminated in the future. To be clear, that doesn't mean that 50 to 80% of all people won't have jobs. That means the actual roles themselves. There are some obstacles that prevent a job from being cut. And some of these obstacles might be long-term in nature, and other ones are just short-term while the technology catches up. 
Obstacle number one is, is there enough demand to invest in the software and the design processes to replace that particular job? If it's something like a bank teller, the answer is yes. Bank teller jobs are very similar right across different companies and even around the world. So there's more than enough demand to replace a job like that to make the investment in software. If it's a job that's very specific to your company, this might buy you some time because perhaps your company might not want to spend the kind of money it might have to to replace one or two people. However, I wouldn't bank on that forever. This will eventually change. The second obstacle that has to be overcome is that in many cases, there's so much extra data that has to come from an IoT solution to replace a human that the current systems can handle that. Don't expect this to happen for long. How long do you think it'll be before technology catches up to where it needs to be? So again, don't bank on this one. The third one has to do with connectivity. Out in the field, there wasn't enough bandwidth in many cases to make many real-time applications, especially if the work is being done in a remote area. So in the case of 4G networks, it wasn't real-time enough to replace certain people. 5G is showing that it's closer to real-time than ever before, and I can only imagine 6G, 7G, whatever else comes afterwards, will definitely become virtually real-time. So it looks like the move towards cutting millions of jobs is already happening, and there's not much to stop it. And it's something we have to prepare for. And I've done some blog posts about that, some podcasts, some videos on different ways that we can actually help people find new work. When we come back from a short break, we're going to talk about part two. And this part's not quite so dreary. This is going to talk about how IoT is changing your life in the future. And that's ranging from things like better customer service, changing what you read, and mainly who writes it, talking about how repairs will happen less often, how it's going to change how you travel, and things like that. Back in five seconds. Hopefully, you're, if you were driving or, you know, on a subway platform, that first part didn't make you want to veer the car off the road into a building or jump in front of a train. I didn't mean to make it that depressing. This part's not going to be quite so depressing. It's going to talk about some of the positive things you're going to see in the world of AI and how it's going to be driven by IoT. The first one is most customer service that you deal with will be done by AI and by robots. Today, most of us, when we call in, you'll get brought to some kind of a menu tree. And that was the initial one where you push a button and get dropped right into a department's queue. The next generation started to be a little more intelligent. And that's when it says, tell me what you want. And that's an AI solution. It's pretty obvious that it's not a person. And they're only starting now to get a little better. Fast forward 5, 10, 15 years from now. And imagine how good that AI solution is going to be. Imagine how much more effective it's going to be at putting your call where it needs to go. And that's going to help out companies provide much better customer service. It's going to be easier for them to ramp up during a busy time. So no more, we're experiencing a high volume of calls. Please wait on hold. All they have to do is activate more resources being dedicated to customer service and you're gonna eliminate a lot of that hold time. The other important part is that these systems are gonna have tie-ins to IoT devices in the field. So say your freezer started to have issues, the companies will have intelligence built into it. So that CS system, when you dial in, 
will actually be able to talk to your device, see what's going on, and perhaps realize that you're on an old firmware, or perhaps there's some issues with the device that can be fixed over the air. And that's going to definitely improve your repairs. So not only will you wait less time to have somebody, or something in this case, answer your call, a lot of the repairs are going to be done on the spot. So you're not going to have downtime for your device. The second prediction it has to do with what you read. And that's what you read very well might not be written by a human. We talked about this in a preview podcast on AI, about how AI is helping authors improve. And that's things like it's learning how you write. So if you're kind of having a bit of stumbling blocks or writer's block, it will help to recommend a possible finish to a sentence. Or it'll even recommend a different word that you might not have chosen before. Today, many bios, social media posts, and weather reports are written by AI. If you've ever watched Inside Man with Morgan Spurlock, which is a show that I wish they would bring back, I really enjoyed it. He actually asked the system to go out to the internet and pull information to write a bio on him, as well as to be able to answer a frequently asked questions page. And this was a few years ago, and even then, it was surprisingly accurate. He was saying, you know, it knew his brother's name and it knew different things about him that he hadn't really spoken about much, so he's not even quite sure how they found it. What you're starting to see now on the cutting edge is that you're actually seeing AI-driven news anchors. There's one over in Asia, there was a story about it, and it looks like a person if you've, unless you look really close at it. The idea being that that will allow much faster news to be put up. It will allow for much cheaper news stations to be done. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if I really like that, We'll see where it goes. I've also spoken about this in the past, and that's the need to change the focus of what students do in school. Many of us had to sludge our way through book reports. I don't know if we should be doing that anymore. Computer programs are very effective at writing reports and summaries, and that's today. So why would you teach a nine-year-old how to write a book report? Because by the time they're into their professional career, there won't be any need to know that. I would much rather be teaching them more creative things like art and design. And again, I've beaten that horse to death, both in the book and in podcasts and in blogs. So if you want to find out more how I think about it, by all means, look up one of those sources. The third area has to do with the Maytag repairman. And if any of you are old enough to remember this commercial, kind of an interesting idea. What Maytag did was they said the repairman is so bored because once you buy a Maytag washing machine, you never call him. That's always stuck in my mind, uh, and anyone that's over 40, I would think you remember that commercial. As IoT starts to provide more information about devices in the field, products should become more reliable. Companies will understand in much more detail how they're actually used. They will find out long before massive failures that some parts weren't quite working as designed, and it will allow them to make changes as well as it will allow them to see software and how reliable it is and to make these changes over the air. The other part that IoT and AI and robotics are doing is making parts and components, as well as the method of installation, so precise that they can no longer be done by a human. There was a great story on Free Zakaria probably six months ago about how precise some parts are to the point that humans can't even make them anymore. They have to be made by machines. And these were for rockets and other massive devices. You're going to start to see that more and more in the manufacturing process. 
even down to some of the lower cost items. I love the fact that, you know, we're going to have products that are better, but I'm, you know, I, I still want to see some human interaction with it. And according to that episode, there's a big movement towards making products that are slightly flawed, just to say that they were made by humans. As I mentioned, you're going to start to see more repairs over the air. But even when it has to be repaired, increasingly, it's becoming robots doing a lot of those repairs. And that's simply because the precision that's required to repair some of these devices, very similar to the manufacturing process, won't be able to be done by humans. The next area has to do with how you travel and how you identify yourself. I've written a blog post about how embedded chips are being used in Sweden for identification. It kind of scares me a little bit that they're doing that so early, but it's basically a rice-sized, I'm not sure what you call it, chip, I guess, being put in between your thumb and your second finger. And this will allow people to scan IDs and for traveling. That's going to start to become more commonplace. It's going to first start with biometrics, and you're starting to see that now, you know, with eye scans and fingerprints, but that's only going to increase. The only thing that will hold it back, I think, will be the amount of systems that have to be updated. So if you're no longer using a physical ID for driving, you're going to have to update every police car. If you're no longer using it for travel, you're going to have to update every port of entry and perhaps every bus, train. You can see what I'm talking about. Millions of systems have to be put in before this can happen. It's not so much a matter of the technology. I think it's not that far away if it's not already here. It's the cost. I'm not sure if municipalities and governments and organizations are going to want to drop billions, if not trillions of dollars to actually update all these systems all at once. But it is inevitable and it's all powered by IoT. The next part is expect to drive less and perhaps to read more. I don't mean that you're going to not move around so much. I mean that you won't be the one driving. I tell this story all the time, and it was from the book, but I've also told it in person. I like to keep my cars for a few years, and my current car is about eight years old, and I think I'm going to keep it for at least another eight to ten years. So I often joke around that this is the last car that I'll ever put gas in, because I do plan on actually buying a plug-in, and I'm going to even put solar panels in to be off the grid. If I keep my next car, say for 15 years or so, that car would be the last one that I drive. I believe that autonomous cars are about 10 years away from starting to become mainstream. My prediction is 2028. I don't think you're going to see people taking their cars off the road en masse, but you're going to start to see the early adopters kicking in about them. So if I kind of have my next car from, say, 2025 to 2040, I'll be about 10 years into the autonomous car craze. And by that point, I think they've gotten all the issues out. You might say, nah, 10 years, that's way too close. Not really. Cars have been braking for a while with autonomous braking. They've been steering sometimes. They can park themselves in many cases. And I did a little video, which is on our YouTube channel, and it talks about how Tesla's autopilot is actually a much better driver than the average driver. The average driver has an accident roughly every 500,000 miles driven, according to government stats. It's six times that for the Tesla autopilot, over 3 million miles between accidents. And that's today. Imagine where that goes 5, 10, 15 years from now. So expect to drive less, and perhaps you can use that time to read a great novel, maybe even one written by a machine. 
The last thing we're going to talk about is how the combination of 5G and going forward 6G, 7G, AR, and VR are going to dramatically change how you're entertained and will change the travel industry. AR and VR are pretty good today. I've written a blog post about how my son and his friends were playing pool in my garage, but we don't have a pool table. They were doing it on their smartphones. And yeah, you could tell it wasn't quite a real table. But again, fast forward to where that's going to go. That content was pre-done. And I think that's like most content. Very little AR and VR is actually transmitted over the air in real time. And that's mostly due to the lack of bandwidth. 5G and going forward, 6G, 7G is definitely going to replace that. There's going to be plenty of bandwidth to be able to transmit widely. And that's going to change things like concerts. Why would you drive to a concert, go through security, do all these things when you're going to be in an experience that'll make it seem like you're actually in one? And they can do this live. This will change sporting events, you know, like the UFC and the big boxing match. Why would you bother to go there? And I think this might impact attendance for a lot of these things. Forget how it's going to change the movie industry because you're going to be able to sit in your living room and feel like you're actually in a starfighter or whatever it's called, the ship on Star Wars, you're going to actually feel like you're in there. So why would you bother going to the movie theater? I think VR is going to go one step further, though, and it's going to become so lifelike that people might not travel because it's going to feel like you're really there. And many of you might be thinking what I'm thinking is that that sounds an awful lot like Total Recall. Does that mean they're going to be messing with my brain? Not exactly. You're going to get a 360 view that's going to be so interactive, they could even pump in smells and those kind of things that you might think you're in the middle of the Vatican, or you might think that you're in a rainforest. And I think that might even go one step further to make you think you're running with the bulls. So why would you bother to travel? I think a lot of people aren't, and this definitely will affect the travel industry. When we come back from a short break, we're going to talk about how smarter headlights are a bright idea. Back in five seconds. If you live in a city or even in some of the suburbs, you might not use your high beams on your car all that much. Most places you go have good street lights and you're constantly having drivers driving in the opposite direction so you'd be blinding them anyways. However, if you're in rural areas, you probably use them a lot. Low beams can only throw light far enough to properly illuminate up to speeds of about 60 kilometers or 35-37 miles per hour for my American friends. Driving with your high beams on is ideal, but as I mentioned, it blinds other drivers and many people just aren't that quick at doing the changeover. A solution that's very popular in Europe helps to solve this, and this is called adaptive driving beams. They're available on many cars in Europe, but they're currently not available in the US, as it's mandated that cars can only use low or high beams. They don't allow for any kind of self-adjusting systems. These systems are quite smart, and kind of cool. They use sensors and cameras to account for oncoming traffic. So basically what it does at night is it will always default to your high beams until it realizes that your high beams are conflicting with somebody else. It also uses projectors and shades to throw lights to optimal spaces. So when you are taking turns, that's how it knows to follow the turn as opposed to going straight. This does mean for more expensive equipment, and one thought would be would it only be for the rich? But many cars on the road have the technology that's needed and definitely the processing power to be able to do this. In the case of Audis, they simply need a software update that's available 
on the European version, but not on the North American version. It seems that up north in Canada, for the first time, not going to be using U.S. standards for lights, but instead are going to use the EU standard. One can hope that this will change for the U.S. As we speak, they're allowing comments up until December 11th on should we be doing this for the law, and then it will take, unfortunately, up to 18 to 24 months for the law to be implemented, and then for manufacturers to make the required changes. But I think we have to get started right away. I think it's too important, and people need to see it at night, and I don't think we're doing it very well right now. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I look forward to having you listen to other ones. As mentioned, our new webpage, the Internet of Things Made Simple.com, has some phenomenal information on IoT. And I humbly ask that you subscribe to this podcast using your favorite podcast service. Thanks again for listening. I'm Larry Bohumer. Take care. <laughs>